Hi, you are listening to An Age podcast. I'm Michael Schlechter, The Age's digital editor, and today I'm talking with John Sylvester, award-winning crime writer, columnist, and Hawthorne tragic. Hi, John. Let me start with a simple question. If you had played for Hawthorne, what position would you have played? Considering my uh, history in football, it would be as a scared winger. <laughs> um, I remember playing um, against Heidelberg Colts. I played for Preston Scouts, and it was an underage game. And the whole crowd were drinking long necks, which surprised me because it was 10 in the morning. And <laughs> I was an outside winger. It was a very dewy day. And very outside or? Very outside. But I invented corridor football that day because um, I went to kick the ball off the ground and one of their players dived on it. So I kicked him in the guts <laughs> and the crowd stopped. And I thought it was a good idea. So I tried to kick it again and kicked him in the guts again. So the crowd started screaming that they were going to kill number eight. And I felt sorry for number eight till I realised that was me. And that's when I invented corridor football because I then wouldn't play on the wing too close to them with their large bottles of Abbott's Lager and played up and down the middle. So I, I consider myself a football innovator. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so if you had not played football or been a journalist, what do you think you would have done? I had no idea, Michael. I was, uh, I was at university doing a double degree um, at the time. Um, so what were you doing? What were your two uh, streams? Uh, sleeping in and drinking beer. <laughs> and I was, I was getting honours in both. And um, in my last year, my father kept saying, uh, what do you want to do? And I had no idea. And it was Beverly Miller, um, Mick Miller, who became Chief Commissioner's wife, Beverly, who said to me, John, you should be a journalist because you've got an opinion on everything, which was her way of saying, I think that you're a smart ass. So I applied um, both at The Age and the Herald and Weekly Times with no intention of getting the job, but just to keep my old man off my back. The Age responded, that I would have to sit some sort of exam. And I wrote back and said, I don't have time for such tests. Um, and so I went to the Herald and Weekly Times and went total shock. I got the job because that was not the plan. And uh, Your father approved? Well, he approved that I was getting out of bed before midday, I think. And um, I had no idea about journalism. Some would say I still don't. But I remember going in in a skin-tight pair of flares with my <laughs> 21st birthday present, which was a gold pen, and it was sticking out of my pocket. And the editor, John who Morgan... Bought by who? Who was the pen bought by? I can't remember who gave me the pen, but uh, John Morgan looked me up and down and said, leave the pen at home, son, it'll get stolen here. And I thought, you cynical old man, and two days later it was stolen. So I worked out then that you needed to listen to your editor. Uh... Did you always love crime? Was that always the... My father was a policeman, but I had no intention of being a crime reporter. Mm. Probably had an interest in politics, but I was a terrible, mediocre general uh, uh, graduate cadet, which was a one-year cadetship. And I thought I'd see that out and do something else. But then they sent me on rotation to police rounds where we actually worked outside of the building. We worked at the Russell Street Mm. Police Station. And... um, I just fell in with a really, really good group of guys. Um, was it quick? I mean, when you got into that round, it was like, this is it? Did you have a moment of... Look, it was or was a, it just a gradual build-up of, that's that's probably what I'm going to love and do for the rest of my time? Well, it was a place where you were allowed to drink beer during the day and drive a car very fast. <laughs> so it sort of covered my KPIs from the beginning. <laughs> they were really good guys. They still remain dear friends. And, and that's across the board. And if you think of the sort of talent that came out of that place... 
um, at your Walkley Award winners and so on. You know, you've got people like Andrew Rule, Lindsay Murdoch. Mm. Um, you know, there was a great deal of, it was a great um, um, grooming area. And the funny thing is, a lot of people would say to me, um, you're a fool because you're too lazy to actually get out of this particular area. Um, and as it's turned out, the way the media's gone, it's probably gone towards specialists. So um, I I didn't change. The world did, if you like. Before your time. Well, or just too bone lazy. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is, um, you know, you, you're dealing with cops and, and crimes and, and real-life drama. So it's, you know, the best seat in the house regarding journalism. And it was also at a time when I started where you were, um, you had personal and professional relationships with with the cops and the crooks. It, it was less PR-driven. And there's a reason. You know, there were probably eight or ten reporters from who were specialist crime reporters. Mm-hmm. And now look at it. And with social media as well, the, you know, the police couldn't possibly take all the calls directly. The investigators had never had time to actually investigate. Mm-hmm. So I noticed through your columns, Naked City, that you do seem to have a real love for police men and women. You know, there is a genuine affection, it seems to be, for the job that they do. Did that come from your father? Or you just, through your time, working with them? I think what my father did um, was t- um, take away any mythology about the police. So I, mm. I saw them actually as real people rather than as a uniform because I'd been with them all that time. Mm. I was also pretty like my father was particularly good and had a particularly good reputation. Rep- had a particularly good reputation. Mm. Did and he I, show a softer side at home? I mean, did he kind of give you the sort of a... He, ter- he the, terrified people. He didn't terrify me. I couldn't I couldn't see it. And he wasn't a particularly big man, mm. but he was, you know, he was known to be scrupulously honest. And I and I have been told by crooks um, in, in my later uh, years that they gave me a fair shake because of my father. And probably cut me a bit of slack, and mm. you know that that was a, a great advantage that you that the name was already known, not through any talent, but just through the old man. And I assume you would have seen the more human side to it, I guess, through your father. Well, that's right. You saw police off duty, mm. and um, you actually saw some of their struggles or their humour, and that's what's lost um, for most people is any of the emergency services because of what they deal with. There is an incredible black humour. And um, hopefully within the column, uh, it seems strange that you can be talking about such matters but put some humour in. Mm. So the column, Naked City, it's been going now for about eight years, is that right? Uh, Yes, some people would say that it's um, sort of one story told many times. But no, (laughs) it's a a funny thing, Michael, because I always... um, I think, would put jokes or little quips in stories and the sub would laugh and take it out. And the reason being that it was, you know, you understand that the media was quite formalised. It, mm. you know, it was coming out as one voice. You know, the, the, the process was to have that you really didn't know who'd written page one. It was written the same way mm. and covered the same matters. And that was a formula that worked successfully. But um, I always thought there was a need maybe to have a, a different sort of voice. And now, Was that the intention from the start, that you would have that voice in it, that a more personal aspect to these it stories? Was, you way overestimate the standard of planning that's done. <laughs> Steve Foley asked uh, 
me to do a column with Andrew Rule, and we're going to go week and week about. Um, I resisted it uh, because it looked to me to be far too much work. And um, but you know, Steve, he was very persistent. Very persistent, yes. And he looked very sad, and <laughs> I felt sad because he felt sad. So we gave it a go. I had no idea it would last as long as it has. So the ideas for it, where do they? I mean, they must come from many different avenues now, but. I had no understanding of a column that um, so many really nice people um, become involved in it. And there are, I would say, 25% or more of those columns comes from uh, readers, um, many of them whom are involved in law enforcement or the judicial system, who, who contact me and say, hey, I've got this, this um, great story. This great Can story. Can you tell it for us? Yeah. And, and they I, trust you, I assume, that you will tell it well. Well, you know, there's been some, you know, extraordinary cases. You know, somebody contacted me uh, to talk about um, a young man who'd been charged um, because he'd, he'd been, it was a, a, it was a matter that he was charged with what we would call carnal knowledge. Mm. Um, his girlfriend was a couple of years younger. They were having a kiss and cuddle things got out of hand and he, he was charged. But in the end, he ended up being put on the um, sex offenders register because there's, there's nothing, it's mandatory. Mm. So a young man's life was, well, not quite ruined, but really damaged. And that was never the intention of the law. So you can cover something serious like that. Or uh, a policeman rang and said, I've got a friend who's a, a sergeant and He's an older fella and he's just a demon. He just loves his job and he's a, just a fantastic car thief catcher. He's an old-fashioned crook catcher. And to sit down and talk to a man um, who, you know, when many police are considering retiring, he just loves his job. Mm. So it's just fantastic that you get to, to meet these people. I, I did a story the other week on Paul Coughlin, a, a fantastic Supreme Court judge, the Director of Public prosecutions who did all the deals that really solved the underbelly gangland war but the sting in the tail was that his grandfather uh, when they found um, he became a citizen of Victoria and he was Chinese and when they checked his uh, citizenship it was listed as innkeeper and opium dealer <laughs> and, and Justice Coughlin says not a bad country, is it? When the grandson of an opium dealer becomes a Supreme Court judge, <laughs> and that and that that yeah. actually tells us that the cliche that judges are all white, you know, uh, privileged private mm. schoolboys is a nonsense. So, have you found because your column works very well online, and once you've moved into that digital space, do you find that ideas and feedback comes through different ways now? Do you get when your column goes up, do you get many emails through social media? Uh, a lot of messages uh, via email and Facebook. The vast majority of them, considering um, you know, we know the, the um, negatives of social media, particularly, say, for the footy riders, mm. I've been treated surprisingly well. Um, you know, there's, I, I don't tweet because I don't trust myself. Mm. But I did see, you know, some fella um, put on online that um, he, I wrote about a, a hitman who was in prison 
and he'd been bashed. And I said the rumour was he'd been an informer, but that wasn't true. He just had very, very bad personal habits and he'd used somebody else's toothbrush, which is why I got bashed. And somebody put online um, that I was doing the police work, implying he was a, um, an informer in order to get him killed. And I thought, that's extraordinary. So I just had a quick drill down on the name of the fella and just messaged him back and saying, well, you'd know a little bit about hiring a hitman, wouldn't you? Because this was a fellow who was acquitted of hiring a hitman to kill a business associate. And um, he didn't he didn't bother returning fire on that particular one. Well, I was curious about that. Is there, is there, because clearly they are very sensitive topics at times and you're dealing with sometimes people's lives. Is there any column you've regretted writing? You've crossed the line. Is there something, a moment where you thought, oh, you've put someone at risk that you didn't really want to? I don't think I've put anyone at, at at risk. That that is a really good point because um, there there are people who will try and get you. And this is not just a column matter. This is right across crime reporting. They will try and get you to write something in a way that will point the finger at someone as being an informer, and so then uh, they're actually putting their lives at risk. Um, Many years ago, I, I wrote a story which said that the the, the, the underbelly wars started when a 28-year-old drug dealer um, was shot on his birthday and um, this started the war. Well, that was Carl Williams, and Carl rang me and said, you can get someone killed writing that. And he wasn't threatening me at all. Mm. He was saying... What he, what he was really saying is... Um, the Morans might think I told you, or the Morans might think I've told the police, and they've told you. So it was more quite matter of fact, I guess. Yeah, his... you could get me killed. Yeah. And it wasn't his 28th birthday, it was his 29th. <laughs> so how do you feel when you're in those situations? Oh, I've been doing this a fair time, so I'm fairly re relaxed with it. Um, yeah, that would be the truth. Have you ever been threatened? Oh, yeah. Um, but, um, oh, you know, Alphonse Gangatano sued me because I, I said uh, on radio, he had the brains of a flea and the genitalia of a match. And, um, <laughs> he got upset about that, but he was shot dead before we could actually do battle in the Supreme Court. Um, a number of other crooks that have, have threatened me, sadly, no longer with us, um, because they were that sort of hothead that they made enemies along the way. Uh, what about within the police force? Is there have you made enemies within? Oh, absolutely. There's there there have been, and remain a number of police who don't like me. Um, the interesting thing, probably, is that the column and doing some radio stuff um, humanises you, mm. and so when they see some gags or they see this sort of stuff, they 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 you know they're part of the inside story, and so that's that's fine. But they're you know, along the way, um, you've got to remember you're not a cheerleader for the police. And if you try to be, you're going to fail um, because you're not a policeman. If you want to be a policeman, go to the academy. And if you if you do cheerlead, invariably, when you write something that is not liked, you'll be seen as betraying them. But mm. it's not the way. It's just not the way. And there's no point fabricating and telling lies because, frankly, I just forget what I said. And so you get caught out. So, but clearly you must have long-term relations 
relationships with certain policemen in you know in the force and how do you then deal with if there was a, a column or a story that comes up where maybe it would harm these people or the, well funny enough the, the people that I respect tend to be balanced mm. and um, they'll take a blood nose when it's deserved um, and I'm, I'm talking about if you know if there's corruption or violence or these sort of things you know the, the senior police turn around and go well we shouldn't have done it mm. And the rule I've always had is um, um, you catch me doing a crime, lock me up. I catch you doing the wrong thing, I'll write it. And that seems to have worked pretty well. So it's sort of an agreed um, form of exchange between... It is. I mean, the, it, the, the more pressing issue across the board is the number of cases that at any one time... Um, what the general public wouldn't know is that uh, mainstream media, which includes the Herald Sun and the Age and whoever else, radio stations, commercial television, ABC, there'd be any number of stories that um, journalists are sitting off at any one time. Mm. And and the reason being that if you wrote it today, um, maybe an undercover operation, maybe a long-term murder investigation would be destroyed. Is that worth a page one, mm. to know that a 20-year-old murder was not solved, that the crook was warned, that the evidence was taken? So you are, you know, you have a responsibility to the media, but you have a broader responsibility to the community. Mm. And with social media, and uh, it becomes more and more difficult. The little club that was police rounds no longer exists. That may be a good thing, because if you look, if you look uh, historically in Australia, you will find that rarely have the big corruption stories been broken by the police reporters because they've been protecting their nest. In New South Wales, the big corruption of the late 70s and early 80s wasn't broken by the old crime reporters because they were frightened that if they wrote this stuff, they'd be... They're, they're in, information flow would be stopped. It was the Marianne Wilkinsons and the Wendy Bacons of the National Times that did it down here. It uh, might have been an Evan Witten from the old Truth newspaper who pushed so much on the abortion issues. And we're lucky uh, in this paper and in this society to have people like Mackenzie and Baker in the investigative unit. So, And they free range across the board so it's not just little clubs of of, mm -hmm. of rounds reporters who can become captive to their sources sure is there one person one individual who you just you wrote a column about you just can't get out of your head it was just such a tragic event or sad or something circumstances or it's a it's a funny thing michael that often it's um it's the reason i reckon i can keep going is that you often see amazing heroism or dignity. Um, you think of Messina Halvargas, you know, a young woman who was stabbed to death tending her grandmother's grave in 1997. And, um, you know, it became clear it was Peter Norris Dupas who'd done it, a serial killer. And there was investigation after investigation. They got nowhere. But then um, a young policeman by the name of Paul Scarlett, he rang... Um, a lawyer who had done time in Andrew Fraser, who was still in jail. Now, the police hated Fraser. 
and a lot of the senior people wouldn't give him the time of day, but he'd spent some time with Dupas. And Scarlett swallowed his ego and rang Fraser and said, can you help us on this case? And Fraser said, what took you so long? So ultimately, Fraser provided key evidence against Dupas. Mm -hmm. Now, Dupas was serving life no minimum for two murders. So on any sensible uh, economic grounds, you wouldn't run the trial because mm. he can't do another day's jail. He's only got one life. But Paul Coughlin, who was the DPP, said the Helvagas family deserved justice. They deserved to hear what happened. So he ran the trial and Dupas was convicted. Uh, but that was quashed on appeal. So they ran it again and he was convicted again. Not one day's jail, but the Helvagas family were entitled to their day in court. And as long as we do that, despite what you read about crime, we remain a civilised society. You clearly love the job, John. I'm so lucky to have fallen into that mm. job. And... Um, my first interview at the at the Herald and Weekly Times with one fellow went really well. His second interview with a panel went so badly, uh, and I do remember that one of the fellows was deliberately, I now know, being antagonistic. It was so long ago you could smoke in the interview, and um, we ended up having a fair old blow. And he was telling me that he thought the journalism course should be at Melbourne University, and I said, I don't think it should, it should be at RMIT because it's a trade, it's a craft. And he looked at me and he said, John, your attitude's typical of someone who's not in the workforce. And I said, your attitude's typical of someone who's never been to university, and I suspect never will. And his mate's cigarette started to glow as he tried to stop laughing, and he blew ash all over himself. And I got up and I said, Thank you, gentlemen, for your time, but I nearly said because we've wasted it. And two weeks later, <laughs> the phone rang, and it was that bloke. And he said, you got the job. Where would you like to work, the Herald or the Sun? And I said, the Herald. And he said, you start at the Sun on Monday. <laughs> Thank you, John. It's been great talking to you. Good on you. Thanks. <laughs>